0: Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi everyone, this is Angie from All Creatures Podcast, and I am extremely excited about this interview today. Earlier this year, Chris and I covered the Asiatic wild dog, also known as the Dole, in episode 322. And we discussed how the Dole is one of the most endangered large carnivores in the world, and it's native from Asia. It's also known as the whistling dog, which is super cool. So when we were researching information for the Dole podcast, one scientist and his work continue to stand out. And so, of course, as you do, I started following him on social media and reached out to him to see if he'd be able to help us learn more about the endangered Dole and what is being done to conserve this beautiful carnivore. So, I'm really happy to be talking with Dr. Arjun Srivasa, who is a wildlife biologist that specializes in large carnivores from Asia and works with the Wildlife Conservation Society, also known as the WCS, of India. And he is here today to help us learn more about the Dole and what research is being done to help conserve this beautiful wild dog of Asia. So Arjun, welcome to Aural Creatures Podcast, and thank you for being here across the world today uh, to talk to us all about the dole. Thank you. Hello. Hello,
0: hello. Always excited to be talking about dogs in general, but definitely doles in specific. Yeah. So thank you for having me.
1: Oh, I'm just so excited to have you here. We've been trying to coordinate this interview for a couple months because you've been busy in the field, and I've been loving following you on social media, seeing what's happening. So it's going to be a fun time talking about doles today. And before we get started, Arjun, I was wondering if you could just give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and your current position.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm Arjun Shivatsa, and uh, I, I don't think I can talk the wonderful uh introduction that you gave me so the boring version of it uh is that yes i am a wildlife scientist i am currently working in india i'm affiliated with two institutions one is the national center for biological sciences and the other one is a ngo that many people may know which is wcs Uh, i have been uh, doing this for over a decade now which is studying wildlife my focus has been uh, on carnivores like tigers and bears and wild dogs and leopards, uh, of particular interest to me has been the dog, of course. Uh, I love all dogs. Those just happen to be the coolest ones, I think. Yeah. So for the past 10 years, I've been studying the species. Uh, I did my PhD a couple of years ago from Florida at university of Florida. So yeah, so, but although I did my PhD over there, but my field work was still in India. So, and then we initiated what is perhaps the first long-term study of those populations in the, the Western Ghats of India? And, uh, and that's what I've been doing now. Other than that, I'm also an artist and a cartoonist. So a lot of my time sort of de-stressing happens with me doodling cute cartoons of wildlife, again, in general, but also those in specific.
1: Yes, Arjun, we're definitely going to touch on that because I just think there's so many different ways to help wildlife and de-stress. Uh, and so I want to, I definitely want to pick your brain about that. And I must admit this podcast is a passion project of mine and it's one of the ways that I de-stress, <laughs> but also help wildlife as, as I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. So before we dive into dole behavior, dole conservation and the research happening with them, I was wondering, did you always want to work with animals when you were growing up as a kid? And do you, you of course mentioned dogs, but I was wondering if you have a favorite animal.
0: So yes, I've always loved animals, uh, while growing up in India, I didn't know that you could become something called a wildlife scientist. So uh, like through high school, you know, you know, when you're in a new class and they ask you to introduce yourself and tell us all what you want to become when you grow up. Uh, I, I still remember saying that I want to be a zoologist. but. Also, uh, when we think back on it, like, you know, the kind of things that kids want to be is so diverse. When you ask them in their middle school or your high school, everyone wants to be an astronaut or like, you know, they want to be an artist or a painter, whatever it is. And then like, as you grow up, by the time you're in undergrad and you're introducing yourself, it already narrows down. Most people want to do like one of like, you know, five to 10 odd jobs that most people are going for. Uh, But I remember that this wanting to be a zoologist was sort of consistent with me. I wanted to study animals. Uh, eventually, of course, I found out that there was like a specialized course where you could become a wildlife scientist where you study wild animals. Uh, and that's how I ended up like following this path.
1: Yeah. And was there an animal that you loved growing up or now in your working years? Do you have a favorite?
0: I feel like uh, because I'm a city kid, I was born in a big city in India, Uh, my exposure to actual forests and nature was perhaps limited. As with most people who grow up in, uh, you know, far away from such natural settings, uh, I think a lot of uh, cartoons and movies and popular culture plays a big role uh, in how we think and how we feel about nature. So I grew up like watching Jungle Book and Lion King and, you know, all of these uh, and also, of course, like watching all the nature documentaries in uh, on uh, Animal Planet and uh, Discovery and Nat Geo back in the day. Uh, so at that time, I feel like a lot of my influence came from what I saw. So I really want I saw the Lion King and I thought the lion was my favorite animal. I'd never seen a wild lion before. Uh, of course, that elephant has a big cultural and like religious as well as like, you know, aesthetic role in uh, South Asian so, and I remember being very fascinated by elephants. Uh, as aside, aside from all the wild animals, I I was always like I'm. I'm still a very dog crazy person. I absolutely love dogs. Uh, so I remember being like obsessed with dogs throughout my childhood, and now like I just study. I study. I continue to study them. Yeah.
1: And when you were in college and undergrad in India. Was there a time when you went out into the field or when was the first time you were out in the field? And since then, have you had like an animal interaction story that really solidified? You're like, okay, I want to do this. Because a lot of uh, wildlife biologists or people that want to do field work, the first couple of times they go collect data and they realize how hard it is or how much trekking you have to do or the weather elements or the heat and just all of it, uh, people might say, okay, that's that's not for me, or I like this aspect, not that aspect. And so do you have like a moment when you were, whether it was in undergrad or graduate school, where you're like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to follow around, track wild animals, look for camera traps, and, and then have that interaction that just was like, aha,
0: I love this. <clears throat> That's a little difficult to answer as I, it, I didn't have an aha moment that way. Uh, but I'll tell you what did happen. So uh, undergrad in India is slightly different. You can't be extremely specialized. So most of the courses that we have are more generic. So I did my undergrad in life sciences, so which means I had a triple major in chemistry, botany, and zoology. So wow, that's
1: that's diverse.
0: Yeah, but that sort of comes together and under the life sciences sort of category, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's yeah. what I did. And it was during my undergrad years that I start. Uh, and this is also. You know, a lot of things happen, uh, like, you know, sort of destined to be this way. It was also the time that social media started to gain a lot of traction uh, beyond like uh, Yahoo email lists and all of that. So we had yeah. uh, MySpace and Orkut and all like really um, surfacing at that time. So what happened around that time, this was around 2006, six seven. Uh, that's when I did my undergrad. And this was also the time when like awkward and Facebook was in its nascent and stuff. And so a lot of the uh, wildlife NGOs and research institutions started using social media to call for volunteers. So, and we happened to be in that generation that took to social media immediately. And we figured out that, oh, there are all of these opportunities where you can go volunteer. And, and it was during my undergrad that I chanced upon several opportunities to, you know, until then I was a wildlife biologist in my head. Like I, I liked it. I didn't know any better. I didn't know what it was like. I just like, you know, vicariously, like from a distance, I thought I already was one. Uh, so yeah, when these opportunities came along, so I applied and then managed to do multiple stints. So this in- included radio tracking king cobras in the wet forests of the Western Ghats. I got the opportunity to go to the dry, arid lands of northwestern India and walk along this uh, river called Chambal. Uh, looking for the critically endangered gharial crocodiles, um, you know, one of the first surveys of the sort uh, at that time. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. all of th- and, and and I'm just naming two here, but and then I got multiple opportunities thanks to sort of the pervasive nature of social media in its nascent. Uh, and yeah, and every time I went, I didn't want to come back. Like uh, the, the studying and being in class after that felt like uh, that's that. Finally, it felt like that was a means to an end. Until then, I had no idea. So I didn't have one aha moment, but every stint, every volunteering stint, I enjoyed. I I picked up everything with so much uh, enthusiasm. Uh, like, you know, I was excited about GPS units. I was excited about data sheets. Like, you know, that you can have a structured study of the sort to understand nature and wildlife.
1: Yes, I am an I am a science animal nerd, so I know exactly that excitement. Whenever I remember the first time I had the data, some animal behavior data, so I was sitting at the zoo, and I, I taught myself how to use Excel, and I was like, oh, I can sort the columns, so I can like separate it out by the months, and then <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. But it is, isn't I know I think you uh, you bring up a really good point with uh, social media. Is there is a lot of good that can come out of it, right? I mean, I do feel. Uh, there's a lot of positivity and way to help animals and, and and do more conservation because at the touch of a button, you can connect with people. Uh, if it wasn't for social media, I wouldn't have been able to, or it's taken longer to connect with you. And I love following your stories and learning more. So I'm, I'm glad that you came about and you, uh, got your first internship or volunteering opportunities and then just grew from there. And I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it more here in the podcast towards the end, Mm -hmm. but, uh, we're gonna we'll focus on doles today, but you've studied a lot of other species, so uh, you're you have a very uh, diverse, and interesting resume. But focusing on doles, Arjun, can you give our listeners a brief background on doles, what they look like, their biology? Uh, why should people care about the endangered Asiatic wild dog, the dole?
0: Yeah. So I've been asked this question because, as you can imagine, as a dole scientist. The first question usually is, what can you say about the dole?" This question was easier for me to answer about eight years ago, because there were such few things that, you know, just about the things that excited me about it. But over time, the knowledge has grown so much. My experience with the species has grown so much. So now I... I'm beginning to understand that the basic question, what is a dole, is like so much more than just explaining what the species is like. So I just wanted to put that little, like, you know, give that little (laughs) disclaimer that this is obviously not a full-fledged introduction, but this is like a very bare basic sort of intro to what a dole is. Uh, Like you said, uh, the dole is a wild dog. It's uh, called the Asiatic wild dog, and it also has several other names, the whistling dog and red dog and, and so on. Uh, they are not uh, very closely related to your domestic dog. They're not just dogs that happen to be free living. They're a separate species that evolved long, long ago. And currently, most of their populations are found uh, in Central, South, and Southeast Asia. And within this within this range, most of them are found in the forests of South and Southeast Asia. So the dole looks uh, like a combination of your domestic german shepherd but uh, in a slightly different color think of it as a fox red it does have a very black bushy tail the dole is about the size of the german shepherd uh, but they uh, but it doesn't live alone it lives in packs so a pack usually has between two to 25 individuals sometimes briefly a lot more than that but then it just comes back because obviously you can't you can't continuously stay in really large groups uh, the dhole is a carnivore, which means it eats meat, and it's also called a hypercarnivore because a majority of its diet consists of meat. And the animal weighs about uh, fifteen kilos or about up to twenty kilos, like the big males weigh about twenty kilos. But packs of dholes, fascinatingly, can hunt and eat animals that are about ten to twenty times their size. And that's insane. Wow. Like, that's amazing.
1: That's insane. Yeah. yeah.
0: And the way they do it is through coordinated hunts inside dense forests. And because you can't see each other to coordinate with each other in these dense forests, they have this weird way of communicating with each other, which is through whistling. So which is why they're also called whistling rods. Uh And the way they whistle is very similar to, uh, like, a lot of, I mean, if you weren't looking at the animal, you could confuse that to be a bird. You know, that's how strange it sounds. But that's not the only sound they make, but that's one of the main sounds that they make, right? We'll speak a little bit about that later. Uh, And what else is there to say about the doll? Uh, Yeah, they are uh, absolutely fascinating because they're social animals, they live in packs. Uh, When you see them, you get to see them do some very cool things, interacting with each other. They're very playful, the pups especially. Uh, So if you happen to see like a pack with pups, there's like so much entertainment happening. The unfortunate thing is that uh, the dole is an endangered species, which means that their numbers are really low. What this number is, actually, we don't really know. Uh, So a bunch of us dole experts from around the world, we believe that there may be somewhere between 4,000 to 10,000 of them left in the world. But remember, I told you that they live in packs and they have a social structure, which means in every pack, there's only one alpha male and one alpha female, the top dogs, that usually reproduce. So which means that the number of doles that reproduce is not 4,000 to 10,000, but it's much smaller than that. So that number may be somewhere around 1,000 to 2,000, which makes it one of the most threatened carnivores in the world. And uh, yeah. yeah, so and uh, the, all of that part is like really sad and depressing. But uh, the good thing is that in the past decade or in the past 15 years, there has been a lot more focus on the species. There are a lot more people working on it. And uh, there's more awareness of what the species is and its, and its situation. So it seems like the next decade is going to go a little better for the doll than the past couple of decades. So that's something to be hopeful about.
1: Yes, definitely hopeful, and that's when uh, Chris and I were researching for our Dole podcast. We did see that there are a lot, a lot of groups, through the WCS, who you work for and work with, but there's other organizations and a lot of people coming together, which I we're definitely going to talk, touch on, and talk about a little bit here in the po- in the podcast. But since you are a Dole expert, and I have you here, uh, Arjun. I know that doles do not bark or howl, right? Like we think of wolves and dogs. No. Uh, they, and they make several vocalizations, screaming, clucking, of course, the whistling. So I didn't know if you would be so kind to demonstrate a dole vocalization for our listeners. And,
0: and more importantly, me. <laughs> you know That's a great question. And I wish I could. But the problem is that I I, I physically cannot. Because okay. like I said, the whistle, uh, I mean, and also if I whistle into the mic, that won't really translate the way it should. Uh, but they also make a range of different calls that go from sort of like whimpering yips and yaps, the way you would hear your domestic dog, like your pet dog makes those weird nasal noises when it's like wimping, like sort of the like the very whistly whimper. But they also like make really strange calls, like when they encounter a threat like a human or a tiger for example they have these really loud cackling gurgling noises that they make um, that's very loud and very scary uh, and uh, yeah and we've been fortunate enough to like hear and see them do this uh, and the the funny thing is that the noise it's coming out of the animal but it doesn't seem like it should you know the image of the animal and the noise do not go well together so that makes it very funny
1: Oh my goodness. Well, you're going to have to get me a video of that some, the next time you're out in the field. Yeah. I'm very of curious course. now. <laughs> and so, Arjun, you've spent a lot of time in the field uh, with the Dole's. And so, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your PhD and when you're in the field, what, what was your research study looking at with the Dole's? And Just for our listeners, too, can you explain a little bit about what life is like in the field when you are collecting data Um, and then, of course, back at home in the university analyzing the data?
0: Yeah. Again, this is another loaded question. Like, what do you think about the Dolph? Can you introduce it? that uh, this again, because <laughs> quest- I like to ask deep.
1: Yeah, I like to ask big questions. Yeah.
0: I, again, a question that would have been easier for me to answer maybe eight years ago than it is right now. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I have learned over time is uh, the way knowledge builds is like extremely incremental you pick a topic, you pick a species, or it could be in any other. Like, this is just my perspective that you keep adding to it. And that's how you build knowledge, right? Um, And like, of course, there are people who may do like, you know, one project and then I'm going to move to something else. But and then if you're passionate about like one thing, one species, you do it incrementally and you keep like at it, right? And that's how you build knowledge. And that I believe just in retrospect, that's just how it happened with me. Uh, I started with, Uh, wanting to know basically everything about the species because at that point like uh, i'm talking about 2012 when i did my master's um, course and then as part of the course i had the uh, i had the opportunity to do a six-month dissertation where we get to ask our own questions about whatever species we want and go anywhere in the country this is in india i'm talking about and go and do a study and then present the results and a master's course is typically where uh, we learn how to do science a PhD is where you're trained how to be a scientist. And I think there's like some difference over there, but we get to that a little later when we discuss careers, right? Uh, so as part of my master's, I just wanted to ask, there's so many questions. If it is a species that has not been studied too much, the possibilities are endless. You can ask anything you want. Right. But mostly I just wanted to go spend some time looking at them, uh, enjoying my, you know, like walking around in the forest in their habitats and then, you know, getting some opportunity to perhaps see them. And they're also extremely shy and elusive animals. So like it's not very easy to see them in the forest and especially in the tropical forests of South India where it's where the habitat is fairly dense. It, I mean, you may run into them maybe a couple of times a month. Uh, but even if you do, it's very unlikely that you'd get to see them for a very long time. Uh, I've had the opportunity now that I've been doing this for about a decade. There have been maybe a couple of, you know, handful of instances where I've gotten to spend about 30 to 30 minutes to 45 minutes with a pack or something like that. But these are rare rare situations most of the time it's just a fleeting glimpse you get to see a little bit like you know at an opening in a clearing or near the water hole or something but it's sort of like you know it's not it's not it doesn't give you the luxury uh that perhaps studying animals in like the boreal forest like the there, lion yeah all R- right like yeah, the lion yeah, yeah, exactly i mean africa uh, the african savannas are like more easy that way compared to the kind of lo- mm-hmm. locations where i study um so i to get back to what i did so my um, for my masters i I wanted to know what, what parts of like one protected area called Bandipur in southern India, I wanted to know what parts of the park are they using a lot versus what areas that they're not using a lot and why. So I walked the length and breadth of the park collecting their indirect signs. So indirect signs are their track marks that they leave behind, their poop. Uh, sometimes you might see them, but mostly it's this because all carnivores, a lot of animals, actually the way, you know, that they're there is because they have some telltale signs that they leave behind. So I walked around every road in the entire national park, uh, trying to document their track marks and their poop, and then mapping where they're found. Uh, and also seeing why they're found in some places and why they're using some areas more intensely and some areas, not so much. So that's how I started. And then eventually I started scaling up. I did this across multiple landscapes in the country and then also helping other people in other countries, you know, design their own studies and do it as well. And then eventually I was interested in uh, figuring out how, how, how do they deal with competition, you know, because they are big carnivores, but they're not alone in most of these forests. They also share spaces with tigers and leopards, which are also like very picky, you know, they're cats, right? So cats are cats and uh, cats are yeah, cats. so how do dogs deal with the cats and then how do they compete and coexist in the same so over the past couple of years that's also been an interest so we've been trying to understand in various ways fascinating mechanisms by which these three carnivores manage to sort of like exist in the same areas uh you know competing sometimes adjusting with each other sometimes avoiding each other to avoid conflict and just like living absolutely fascinating lives uh so that's been that's been another interest as well. But of course, while doing all of these things, you also realize that uh, there is a requirement to understand what are uh, the ways in which you can design studies uh, that can actually help the species as well. So that led me to a lot of my PhD questions that involved not just wanting to understand the species, but what they need in terms of their conservation efforts. Uh, and this could be at the global scale, at the country scale, at the landscape scale, and even at the scale of one individual national park. So what are the different things? And that's essentially what my PhD was. And I'm going to end this with saying one of the key issues that we had for a very long time, like I mentioned some time back, we don't know how many those there are to know right. whether yeah. we are doing, uh, to, whether, what do we need to do? Uh, do we need to save them? Uh, are we doing a good job? We need to see their numbers, right? Are they increasing? Are they decreasing? How will you do that if you cannot count the animal properly, right? If, you're not, right. if you don't have ways yeah. to do it. Uh, the way, remember that these are all in forests, right? So, I mean, they're not in the open where you can go easily see them and count them. So in most of the forest species like the tiger or the leopard, for example, uh, we use something called camera traps. So you set up these automated cameras all around, all around in the forest and then the animal goes in front of the camera and triggers and takes its own selfie. The the interesting thing, or rather the advantage with animals like tigers and leopards is that they have body markings, like pelage patterns, like stripes and spots or rosettes. They're all unique to each individual. So you use those photographs to see how many there are, and you also use some statistical modeling to estimate what the number is, to account for those individuals that never came in front of any of your cameras, right? That's, That's relatively easy to do now, If the animal has some pattern on it, if you see some pictures Mm -hmm. of those, you'll see that most of them look the same. So you cannot use the camera traps and this sort of an approach directly to estimate their numbers.
1: Right. Right. Firstly,
0: you have very few people working on the species. Secondly, you have the species, the animals, the individuals all look the same. And we are also cautioning everyone saying that, oh, it's probably dying. It's probably going extinct. But we have no ways to figure out how many there are. So that's where I feel like one of the most crucial chapters of my PhD came up, where we we designed a unique way of doing this, where we took their genetic material, their DNA, from their poop. And then we use yes, that. Yes, I love poop. Yes. So we use that to identify individuals. So just like you have cameras taking pictures of tigers, instead, we walk around in the forest. Every time we see Dole poop, we take a little bit of it, Uh, Just the way uh, using swabs, the way like we all got tested for the coronavirus. So just like, you know, the swab being shoved up your nose. Instead, we take the swab and gently roll it on the poop. And then that has the DNA of the individual. Then we bring it to the lab and then we create a profile of every individual. Then once we have a profile of every individual that we got, we use the same kind of statistical models to figure out how many individuals might have been there whose poop we never saw when we did the surveys. And then eventually we have an estimate. And we were able to generate that for the very first time in one protected area in the Western Guards. And now subsequently, we have expanded that project and we are doing it in seven locations in the Western Guards. And we are hoping that more people from the other Dole Range countries can pick it up so that at least in a couple of years from now, we'll have more reliable numbers based on which we can actually say that you know, the dole is not doing that great or, oh, maybe that they're doing okay in some places or like where are interventions, any conservation or management needs to be amped up. Um, Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully that will be of some use. Hey
1: there, fellow super moms. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Are you juggling a million things at once like me? Between work and podcast deadlines, after-school sports, taking care of the kids, and of course, all of our pets. Finding time to cook nutritious lunches and dinners can feel like an impossible mission in my house. But guess what? I've found the ultimate lifesaver. Factor. Picture this. Delicious, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your doorstep, ready to heat and eat whenever you need them. No more stressing about what to cook or spending hours in the kitchen. With over 35 mouth-watering options each week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and more, Factor has something for everyone in the family. My husband and I are loving the vegan options, and we are also enjoying their amazing add-ons, from snacks to yummy smoothies. Factor isn't just convenient, it's budget-friendly too. So say goodbye to expensive takeout, because Factor meals are dietitian approved And cost less than dining out. Plus, you can customize your plan to fit your busy schedule and pause or reschedule deliveries whenever you need to. And the best part? Zero prep, zero mess. Just pop a meal in the microwave and boom, lunch or dinner is served. So choose Factor because every supermom like you deserves a break from meal planning without compromising taste and health. And we all need more quality time with the creatures we love. Head to com slash Creatures50 and use code Creatures50 to get 50% off. That's code Creatures50 at Factormeals.com slash Creatures50 to get 50% off. Oh, Arjun, I love that. And just your analogy of how one question can build on another question, can build on another question. I know that people ask me about the work that I did for my master's and uh, PhD, uh, mostly on equids. Uh, what did you learn? I'm like, I actually, every answer I got just really led to another question. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if, I don't even know if I really, I maybe answered a little bit of the first question, but it, it just grows upon itself. And then I think as as you highlighted especially when you're dealing with endangered species is you do need to learn a lot about their general biology and behavior but in the same instance if you aren't if you're not able to know how many or how to protect them then yeah there's like what are we doing here and so Asking, getting some of the basics on how to protect these guys and how many there are are is is super important. And I know that uh, that's a huge problem when I talk to uh, marine biologists uh, and ocean scientists mm-hmm. that are look, looking at species in the ocean. That just, it's hard to know how many there are, and all the estimates are helpful to 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 know if they're declining. And obviously, if there's very few of them, they can usually figure that out. But uh, yeah, you know, sometimes you have to go back to the basics and figure out and what 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 works for one species to count it might not work for another and i've talked to uh, i've talked to several scientists that have had luck with drones mm-hmm. uh of course camera traps but you as you mentioned that has to be for a species that's ident- that it's visually identifiable mm-hmm. so i love poop i'm a huge poop promoter <laughs> because there's so much that poop can tell you about yeah a species. I mean, uh, uh, hormone data, genetic data. And so, yes, uh, we, we do a lot of poop promoting on this podcast. <laughs> so I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you're here today talking about it. And so as you're, you're, um, as you're developing your scientific research and asking these amazing, critically important questions about the dole, How did you then shift to becoming a scientist for the Wildlife Conservation Society, the WCS? Because that just seems like a dream job for a lot of people that love animals like ourselves. Uh, So would you mind touching on that transition and what it's like to to work for the Wildlife Conservation Society of India?
0: Yeah, so uh, this is a very tricky question to answer because I didn't transition into working with them. I have been working with them for a very long time, so it was in fact one of the first volunteering stints that I did when I was an undergrad with this organization.
1: Awesome! So I
0: was a- okay. I have been affiliated with them in various capacities since two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Um,
1: so you're like you're like the success story of what volunteering
0: can do. Yeah, yeah, because. Uh, so, so I mean, I'm I'm just, uh, you can edit these parts out if, if they seem like too many details. Uh, but essentially in, in 2008, nine, when I was still in my undergrad and trying to figure out, you know, what this research stuff is and how to do science and like, you know, how people do wildlife science. One of the opportunities that came along my way was uh, volunteering with uh, WCS in India. Uh, and at that time, they were doing surveys of uh, large ungulate herbivore prey Uh, to look at the potential of certain protected areas to support tigers. Um, So I went and I walked around and I was like, this is amazing. And then I continued volunteering with them for various other projects that came along. Um, And it works pretty much like the same way any other organization, wildlife or otherwise. Once you get to know that this is how it functions, you know the people, you know that, and if you work well, they will also reach out to you saying that, hey, there's something else. And then since you're one of our trained people, do you want to come you know, participate in this, and so on. So, and then later in 2010, when I started my, uh, when I was uh, considering uh, a master's program, so WCS co-runs a master's program in wildlife biology and conservation in India. It's very competitive. And that's at the National Center for Biological Sciences, where also incidentally, I'm back right now and I'm based. So, I mean, life really did come whole circle. So WCS and NCBS and a bunch of other organizations ran that master's course that I managed to get through because they they recruit only about 15 people every two years. And they it's intensive training. And like, you know, only after two years will a new cohort come along, right? So, and then I did that from 10, 2010 to 2012. Then once I graduated, guess where I landed a job? It was at WCS. So because I was a graduate from their own program, I was able to, like, I knew what kind of work they did. It aligned with my interests because carnivore conservation is a huge aspect of WCS in India. Uh, I mean, one of their, like, you know, main, uh, you know, thematic areas in the country. Uh, So I worked there for three years. And then after that, I went to do my PhD at UF. Um, and while doing that, I still needed a host organization in the country for like managing my logistics and funding and everything. And so I continued being part of them. Uh, and then once I got back, I continued to remain affiliated with them. So it's like I said, it's like it's not that I transitioned into a job with them, but I've just been growing alongside the organization.
1: Oh, I love that, though. I mean, because students always ask me, what can I do? And my number one answer is volunteer. Yeah, because that's the way too that you can see if you even like being in the field or like whatever it is that you're not even wildlife based, but whatever you're doing, see if you like it. And then if you and then usually meet people along the way that are mentors. So and then you're just a great uh, story about how starting off That way can then lead to what I consider to be a dream. Most people I think would consider to be uh, a dream job uh, in wildlife biology. And now Arjun, I know that you also uh, volunteer a lot of your time and expertise with Dole's for the IUCN's uh, Candid Specialist Group and the Dole Working Group. So I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of a briefing on what that is and what that entails.
0: Yeah. So a lot of the, so IUCN is the global body that sort of oversees the status of many endangered or threatened species and like makes regular assessment with a network of experts uh, to assess essentially if some species is doing good or bad, or if there are new species that's supposed to be added to the list, removed from the list and so on. Um, Yes, a lot of it is experts giving time voluntarily to do it because, you know, you want to work for the betterment of the species. The way I got into it is because I had the uh, opportune <laughs> moment of meeting the chair of the Canid Specialist Group, uh, Dr. Claudio Silero Zuberi, in uh, in a conference of, uh, about seven years ago when I was presenting something about uh, wild dogs and other canids in India, and then he was there in the audience and he was like, "Oh, this is some really nice work and you should be part of the Canid Specialist Group because like we don't have as many people. Uh, working on these species in uh, many parts of the uh, of the world, but definitely from India. And that's how I got onto that. And uh, subsequently, because I was there in that network, there was also like one working group that focused on the Dole, the Dole Working Group, which was part of the Canid Specialist Group. <clears throat> this was also the time when we were sort of grappling with how to actually do a decent assessment uh, because uh, every five years, the IUCN kept putting out some information about Dole, but we could see in all of the previous assessments that a lot of the information was just being regurgitated because there's not new information being generated, right? Um, Yeah,
1: I remember when I was covering Dole's, I think it was their last population estimate was from like 2008 or something like that.
0: Yeah, so so all of these things like, you know, there was an assessment in 2004, I think, and then in 2008 again, and it's just like every subsequent version of it had a lot of information just retained from the previous time because there were not that many people working on it. And then it just, again, it so happened that in 2015, 2016, uh, there were a lot more people working on the species. So the Dole working group sort of reconstituted and became a little bit more active because now we had things to talk about. We had uh, sort of an entity that facilitated dialogue between people working on Doles and south asia and southeast asia more importantly a lot of the push also came because there was increase in tiger monitoring exercises across southeast asia and once you have some information from camera traps you know you could identify individuals but you still know that those are here and those are not here right that makes for information so that way we sort of uh, the Dole working group was con- reconstituted in some sense uh, and that's been like fairly active ever since so far, we've managed to run two international dole conferences. Uh, one, The first one was in 2019 in Thailand, uh, which where we all got together and did this massive population and habitat viability analysis for the species across its range. And more recently, just a couple of months ago in uh, in May and June, uh, in the end of May, uh, we met in Nepal uh, for the second conference where our next idea is to sort of, guide national action plans for their conservation in three or four countries that have now produced adequate amount of scientific information. So we're all looking forward to that as well.
1: Yeah, so that's, I just really want to highlight that because I know a lot of uh, the experts I talk to volunteer their time to help push conservation forward of species. And I just applaud you and thank you for doing that. Because if it wasn't for experts like yourself volunteering their time, then we wouldn't we wouldn't have any current data, so thank you for doing that. And within the Wildlife Conservation Society of India, I know they have something called the Dole Project. So I was just wondering if you could touch on some of the new research and what the data suggests about the Dole
0: uh, through the Dole Project. So interestingly, the Dole Project is actually my project. I started. Oh. <laughs>
1: All right. So, yeah. I love that. Yeah, I start- I mean, it makes it makes sense that it's your baby, right? It so is, sure. Yes,
0: it is my it, it is my pup. Yes. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> so I started the Dole project as an entity that I thought uh, during my second year of PhD, I thought what would be ideal for the species from my perspective, for my own personal growth as well as for the species, is produce quantitative rigorous information in the next couple of years. So this should entail uh, multiple things. One is, of course, ecological knowledge. Second thing is conservation assessments that can help governments at various levels or managers or practitioners, you know use that information. And the third thing is increasing outreach and awareness. So with these like a three pronged approach, that was the whole point of uh, thinking about conceiving the dole project in back in 2016. So initially, it was just my own PhD work. Right, it was it was very limited, and I also didn't have staff. I mean, PhD means that you're being trained as a scientist; you do most of the work yourself. Of course, like I had some interns and research research assistants who helped with some of the field surveys, but it was not a it was not a massive entity at that time. Right, it, it's not even now, but it was much smaller back in the day. Um, so the Dole project is basically, you know, those three aspects: uh, do some research figure out some conservation assessments and all of the stuff that I do with the IUCN is also under that. uh, And also more importantly, outreach and awareness because more people, of course, and more people should know about the Dole. It's such a cool, fascinating animal. Why wouldn't you want to know? Uh, So once I completed my PhD, the Dole project as an entity just like remained, uh, but it expanded. So now we run it under two institutions, NCPS, which is where I'm currently based, as well as WCS, where I'm affiliated as well. So the project encompasses multiple sub projects and we have a team of incredible people who have joined over time, who are all like crazy about those who are doing various aspects related to uh, those from, uh, I, 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 I'm going to like give you like a very brief, like a, like a uh, you know, like a description of what all they're doing. We're doing things like estimating population and dynamics. They're using genetics to understand their sociality. We're doing landscape scale genetic connectivity to see how, you know, populations are connected and what comes in the way of it. So what resists, uh, w- what acts as a barrier for their movement. Uh, We're also trying to understand their interactions with people. We're also trying to understand how they survive in non-forest habitats, like coffee and tea plantations that are uh, in, in in the Western Ghats found close to the forest. So, but those are there as well. So we want to know how they're living there and managing there. Um, and then we're also doing diet assessments. We're doing chemical ecology to figure out like, you know, what sort of, uh, hormones and pheromones and chemical compounds that the individuals use and for what reason we're trying to understand their vocalizations and communications and how it links to their behavior. So it's a lot of different things. Uh, and we have a team of about 10 people and of course, like a huge, uh, and you know, this is sort of like. My way of kind of giving back because we take interns all the time. And I'm hoping that now this set of interns who are, you know, just like I was able to like cover niche out of the whole thing for myself by starting my career with interning and volunteering. I'm hoping that all the interns who come and work with us eventually become uh, wildlife scientists in their own right. In the future,
1: yes, absolutely, and we're definitely going to give a call for action because I I saw on your social media post that you're looking for interns, so we'll definitely make sure the listeners are able to follow you on social media and or if they have interest in an opportunity like that, get their foot in the door because that's what it's all about. And I think that I often hear from a lot of people like, oh. One person can't make a difference and, and policies have to change and all of this and that, which is true. We know that you have to vote with mm-hmm. your dollar and that actually policies need to change. But I do believe that you, Arjun, are a great example how one person can make a big difference. I mean, think of that. You're in graduate school, which is – I mean – obnoxious. I can't even, I mean, every day when I would walk, walk by a store that was asking for help, I was like, you know, maybe I'll just work there instead of continuing with this very mm-hmm. challenging science that I'm doing and, um, and having imposter syndrome every day. And it's, it, is, it was fun, but frustrating, yeah. right. And hard. Ho- it's very hard, right. Not for the faint hearted, but also very rewarding. And so here you are doing all of that. And then you're also starting the Dole project, which is just you. And then fast forward, five six years and you have a team of 10 you're getting interns you're i mean the list of research projects that you're studying for the doles for their conservation in biology is just incredible so hats off to you and i i just appreciate the work that you're doing and you are making a huge difference and i i hope that you're you'll be an inspiration to people listening to this podcast as you are definitely an inspiration
0: to me that's very so. nice of you to say but although although that that's not what drives the whole thing though like you know i mean it's very kind of you to say these things and it's nice to hear of course like to like you know uh i mean <laughs> that that's very nice of you to say uh but uh at the end of the day i'm not thinking oh look at how many lives i'm changing or how much right you know and that's really not the thing because every day like what really like Uh, gets me going is what Mm -hmm. new things can we ask and find out about this amazing animal you know what can we do in terms of the science that can help uh, make some information available for somebody else who may have more clout and power to make you know like policy decisions for example so of course like one person can't do too much and i don't think i have like done too many things uh just the fact and that has mostly been collateral and, and all of the you know the things that you spoke about is just collateral it happened to happen that way uh but like the thing that drives me still is just like what cool things can we do today
1: yeah, no I get I totally get that. But from uh, but definitely looking at the whole big picture, uh you you're doing incredible things and and your team is and it's as you mentioned it is very collaborative. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's of course reach working with a whole bunch of people and teams uh, globally and uh but yes, it is it is it is just it's nice and hopeful to know that there are people like you and then like you said, a growing number of people that are having interest in the doles and are wanting to ask these difficult questions. As you mentioned, they're not easy to study, uh, and, and, and fighting for them. And so I, I just I, I definitely do I I hope that you keep asking these questions and keep being driven every day to answer them and to ask more new cool questions or figuring out what type of technology, maybe AI and things like that, mm-hmm. can help help out the doles because they are such a such an incredible uh, species that we need we need to save that's for sure yeah. Uh but Arjun I also want to touch on some of your passion projects that you are in an artist yeah. and a cartoonist and so I was hoping that you could touch on that for our listeners uh, and uh, just share with us uh, what you like to do with your art
0: yeah so I have like always been into art I won't say I, I've always been an artist like I, as a child, I, was, I used to do like a lot of art and then I just continued, didn't stop. And I think that's good advice for anybody who's listening. While mm-hmm. growing up, if you were doing art, just don't stop. It's amazing. You, you don't have to be good at it. It's fine. Just do art. Um. So yeah, I, I, I have. Uh, so and then later, of course, I, I started to do it a little bit more seriously. I wouldn't say professionally uh, during undergrad. And then I took to Oils on canvas, really enjoyed it. Uh, of course, because of my love for animals, most of the things that I made were, like, paintings of animals. Uh, eventually, like, uh, the digital art sort of became more commonplace in all of our lives, I guess, with, like, iPads becoming more, uh, you know, accessible, I guess, and and these apps that made it easier to replicate what you would make on paper, but on a digital app. Uh, that's when I started cartooning as well. Again, these were cartoons of just cute cartoons of animals that I studied. Um, eventually, I think the turning point happened in 2013 or 2014, I, uh, Some sometime around that time, uh, when I published my first paper and uh, my parents did not really understand what that meant uh, because they're not from the academic field and uh, it's difficult to explain that you spend all of this time working on this thing and that's not even available freely, publicly, everywhere for them to go pick it up in a new stand and read. It's just dead in some like you know i know cancer.
1: i i'll never forget my mom when i was uh doing my phd she one i think we we're out to lunch one time and she got out a piece of paper and a pen and she's like now listen angie Please tell me the exact title of your dissertation because people keep asking me, and I don't, I don't. And so she, so I was like, and you know, she's like, and what, 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 like, what field are you in? So I like, I explained it all. Like, I gave her like a quick little. I was like, here's your cheat sheet. And so when somebody asks you, just just read this. Yeah, yeah,
0: I completely understand. And then, but that's that's when I realized that you know, not just me, but by that time I had like. I was very uh, now keyed in into the network of Indian wildlife scientists and conservationists. These are people that I'm still looking up to. They're amazing. The entire bunch of them, like they've done things that I don't think would have been possible uh, for everyone because there's a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, additional difficulties of doing research and conservation in Uh, south southeast asia and global south countries as compared to many other countries i mean that's just the just just the fact like a lot of the logistics and then the infrastructure and everything makes it a lot more easier to do research and conservation in the global north countries than in the global south and the fact that these people men and a lot of women did some amazing science and conservation in india was like incredibly inspirational it like it sort of moved me even now uh, but the fact that all of it was just trapped behind some scientific journal articles and not many people know about it was really like <laughs> it felt like a personal loss to me like why why don't people know about this that's when i somehow randomly on a whim started to make cartoon storyboards of scientific papers so i just took up a species, put a bunch of papers that like my colleagues or extended network of people had done, and then I converted it into panels of eight to ten uh, you know, like a cartoon strip, basically. And then just was, the species became characters, and then they were just explaining what happened with them, and that became a storyline of some sort. And that sort of same to again social media was booming i put all of these things on facebook at that time this was 2013 14 and more people especially uh, like you know people from my family who were on my friend list were finally like oh so this is what you people do you know but uh, because i
1: love that yeah, yeah because
0: otherwise they have a certain version of what people in wildlife do that's based on uh, like one of these people uh, on national geographic or discovery just like wrestling crocodiles or like jumping over snakes or something they think that's our job as scientists, but which, which it is not, right? Uh, but then finally, when I started to put out these things as cartoon stories, that's when it, I realized that it resonated with a lot of people. Um, I also kind of realized the power that social media and art and cartooning has in trying to amplify what we all know as scientists, but nobody outside our circle knows. Um So that's when I took to cartooning as well. So I started to put like a lot of these cartoons out. uh, So people sometimes reached out to me when I say people, I mean, these are scientists or NGOs working in conservation outreach saying, hey, can we use these cartoons because we are doing some awareness about like leopard conservation or uh, dugongs or whatever it is, right? And I was very free to sort of, you know, say, yeah, if it's already out there, I've already shared it on social media, you can feel free to use it. And then that also led to, individuals and organizations reaching out to me commissioning some work so saying that oh we're doing this kind of an outreach program do you have the time to sort of do something for us that involves these elements so then i started to take up some commission work as well so now i have sort of traversed both uh, allowing people to use whatever i've already made in my own time uh, for free mostly uh, but also like taking on some commission work when they approach me and say that we we need these things can you make it for us that's how I've sort of merged my two interests together. Uh, doing art really distresses me. I really like, like doing it. Uh, and also because I am I do think I'm a cartoonist in my head. I am an artist first then a scientist. So I have a very quirky way of even looking at the world. So when I see these animals, I don't just see them as individuals or populations. I see them as characters. You can see that you know there's this one goofy doll and then there is this one really angry tiger and that and that sort of translates when I make a caricature version of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's, and and right now I feel like I'm in a great place where I'm able to put those two uh, interests of mine together. and And that also has its own like outlet and is making some difference somewhere.
1: Oh, Arjun, I love that. I mean, I think uh, that artists have such a unique perspective and way to share stories. And so the way that you've blended both the science and conservation with the art is just is just so wonderful. And when I have students or people reach out to me and say, you know, I'm not a wildlife biologist or I don't I don't have any science background, but I really want to I, I really want to help wildlife. And and my biggest answer is like, well actually wildlife biologists and conservationists and all that they're fantastic but we actually need more people doing the accounting for yeah. nonprofits, profits or the art or selling jewelry or bringing about awareness or i mean i'm a big pitcher now is like go be a lawyer and do some political wildlife science like yeah. help us on the political side of things and so yeah to everybody listening, and i know I-
0: all so <laughs> yes. many conservation organizations need more funds and you don't have to be a trained wildlife scientists to like you know build networks of donors and philanthropists and bring in more money for conservation work
1: Exactly. And so it's it's uh, it's obviously the field biologists are wonderful and we need them desperately need more of them. Uh, But in the same instance, if you're already in a career or, you know, you want to be a teacher or something else, there's still tons of ways that you can help out. And um, I have a few more questions for Arjun, but at the end of the podcast and on our show notes, we are going to link all the ways that the listeners can do that. Mm -hmm. And so that actually leads nicely into my next question, Arjun, is do you have any advice for people or students that do want to do wildlife conservation field work, like maybe they're starting their careers, and how should they go about doing that? Or what did you learn through your journey? But even more specifically, can you focus on India or, as you mentioned, the global south, where wildlife biology and research can be much more difficult than in the global north?
0: I'm not going to call this advice uh, because it's uh, very uh, different for different people the fact that uh, i come from uh, the kind of background that i do i'm able to speak and converse in english fluently and i was in a big city to start out with all of those things adds to certain and the fact that i also come from uh, like an upper middle class family in india all of those things add to the fact that i was able to do what i what i did Uh, that need not be the case for many people. Uh, One of the difficult things to come to terms with is that even now the career does not pay you well, right? The academia part of it does not pay you well uh, because I I remember when I was 22, 23, all of my my friends whom I grew up with, they all took more professional courses and they already landed their first full-time final jobs but i was still in the prep phase of my career so my eventual haha graduated moment actually happened post phd which was almost a decade after most of my friends so this is a reality that i don't think many people think hard enough about yeah it's it's one thing to think about all the things that you will potentially do when you're 21 or 22 it gets very different like Your situation at home, and you know things gets very, things can get very different by the time you're in your late twenties, and you may not be prepared for it if you have some sort of delusion about what kind of uh, money this this field offers. It's not a lot. It's not going to be at the same level as a corporate job or in the bank or whatever, right? Like a lot of your friends might be picking. So I I don't want to call this advice. Uh, because that's that can be uh, uh, that can be very blinkered of me to assume that everybody can do this. No, a lot of things happened to work for me uh, because of who I was and where I came from. Uh, that may not be the case for everybody else. So that's like my disclaimer right in the beginning,
1: <laughs> for sure. But, I I had the same. I always had the same disclaimer for the record too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh... Uh, but
0: but given that if things seem like I mean you have the luxury of picking a career that that can be your passion as well uh, that's a huge privilege and i'm so glad i have that privilege but it's not for everyone uh, and that's really sad but whether or not you pick it as a as your profession i think there's always scope to start interning and volunteering right these are great learning opportunities and if you have the luxury and the wherewithal to do it do it right in the beginning right and now uh, from the indian context Again, social media is littered with like organizations, uh, you know, calling out for various positions and a lot of volunteering and interning opportunities. Uh, it doesn't matter even if it's uh, and if and if you're just starting out, if it's a desk based work, do it. It's OK. You get to know people. You will get to know how a scientific or a conservation organization works. Do it. Even though you might be interested in like, you know, going out there in the field, if there's an opportunity, even if it's a desk based data entry data processing position, do it. Like all of these things are opportunities that you will only recognize in hindsight that you know it might have been, like you know something something that could have led to something. So that is the first thing. The second thing is, like I said, if you are privileged enough and you can pick this as your profession and you're passionate about it, you can, you have to get formally trained in it. I'm talking about the academic side of it. To be a conservation practitioner, you don't necessarily need to be an academically trained scientist, but if you want to do science and research. The next thing to do is to figure out what undergrad courses and what master's level courses would best, um, you know, allow you to do this. So undergrad in India, it's more uh, diffused in that you have to take something that's broader. So I did mine in, like I said, life sciences. But even if you do a like a, if you even if you do a major in like zoology or microbiology or genetics, there's always like scope to then reorient yourself back at your master's level into something that's more wildlife related. Um, and then, of course, like a PhD after that is, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's an it's an option. <laughs> it is an option, yeah. Yeah.
1: <sighs> I do want to
0: say, like, just just briefly, if I may add, uh, the way I thought about PhD after my masters, uh, what it was going to be is very different from what it turned out to be, and now what I realize in hindsight, uh, it's uh, for for many people, it's not the next step after your master's degree. You don't get to do an advanced level of what you did until then. It's a completely different training where you're dealing with too many different things, everything from accounts, managing your own project and people mostly. Uh, and, it's, and it becomes a lot less about the thing that you are passionate about. And you need to sort of prepare yourself to be okay with that. I, I think a lot of people, like uh, unfortunately, don't, don't come to terms with that and understandably so it's not easy doing a phd for five years of your time Uh, and it's also for most people at a time when you're changing as a person as well it's usually between your late 20s to early 30s sometimes that most people do their phds and this is not the same your 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 perspective and your mental makeup is not the same way as it was when you did your masters in your early 20s or mid-20s so there's a lot of other things that go into it uh, and i think people should if they want to do a PhD after a master's, and it's something to think about from multiple perspectives, and not with just whether you're passionate about the subject.
1: Yes, you definitely have to have your eyes wide open. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, when you work with the right team and PI and the right project at the right university, it can be it can be very rewarding. It yes. is definitely very challenging. And uh, but I I remember in my exit interview with all the work that I did, they said, "Okay, what's like you know, what's your one take home message or something and i said well i feel like i just learned how to learn and i'm going to continue learning and growing for years forever uh and this time in my life just really helped me do that and get better at it. And uh, I don't think I'll ever stop learning. I don't think I'll ever become an expert on anything uh, per se, because it's just all about learning and growing, and uh, and then learning how to face challenges, yep. learning to work with people, learning new skills. And that's something I know for a lot of students, uh, it's hard. And people, it's hard to do. It's hard to not be good at something, to feel uncomfortable. And I mean, I felt, I don't know about you, Arjun, but I felt uncomfortable like pretty much every day when I was in grad school. Like I, yeah, but, but I learned, I learned to be okay with that feeling. Mm. Like this means I'm learning if I'm uncomfortable and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. That's why I'm here. Right. I'm not like, these people are hopefully helping guide me and I'm teaching and teaching me. And of course I'm my mentors and I'm learning how to learn and teaching myself new skills and But yes, it is. uh, uh, It's definitely. I definitely was a different person from when I started to when I Mm -hmm. finished. I had a couple. I had a couple kids during mine, so that really then that changed my family dynamic. And that's when oh, I'm like, well, yeah, I can't probably be out in the field as much as I would like to. So, but yes, um, it is. uh, It is an interesting time. And but I, I definitely appreciate you going through all that and and being where you are today and continuing to help learn more Mm -hmm. about. The Dole and how to better conserve them, and putting the right team members and all the collaboration that I know uh, that it takes to study a species like the Dole and to help conserve and protect them. Yeah, and so we definitely look forward to hearing more about your work and how the Dole project is growing and what it's doing. And so I was hoping, uh, Dr. Arjun Shivasa that you could tell our listeners how they could learn more about your website, uh, your research, the Dole project, and of course, social media links where they can follow you and learn about these internship opportunities that I know you advertise on social media. So what are some good websites and, or social media platforms that people can learn more about Dole's and you?
0: Yeah. So currently i Put out almost everything on my personal website but we will be transitioning to a dole project website sometime soon maybe by the end of the year so that's currently in the works but other than that i'd be happy to sort of give you a list of all my social media handles and the current page where we have hosted the dole project which is on my personal website and if that can be made accessible to people through like a description link Uh, through a description box, then that would Mm -hmm. would be easier than me reading out all of my social media handles, I guess. Awesome. Okay.
1: Yes. We definitely will put it all on our social media platform. And then of course we have a webpage at www.allcreaturespodcast.com. And for some quick links, uh, the Wildlife Conservation Society of India has the Dole Project on its website, so you can go to www.india.wcs.org and search for Doles and the Dole Project will pop right up so you can learn more about Doles and the current research that is happening through them. And then as Arjun was mentioning, his current uh, webpage is www.arjunsravassa. That's A-R-J-U-N-S-R-I-V-A-T-H-S-A dot com. Uh, And we will be providing his social media links on our website and our social media platforms as well upon releasing this interview. So I just hope in general, uh, people want to learn more about the doles and how you're helping them. So my hope is at Uh, After listening to this podcast, that uh, you'll want to learn more about doles in general, help educate yourself and your friends about their conservation plight, and also about the great work that several scientists uh, are doing to help conserve them and hopefully increase their numbers in, in years to come. So... Arjun, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today and uh, just helping us learn more about the really cool stuff that's happening in the dole world. And uh, I know uh, for me being an inspiration, but also your team and and what they're doing to help to help grow uh, the conservation efforts and biology uh, knowledge that we have about the dole. Yeah, it so, was it was lovely. You.
0: It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for doing this with me.
1: Yes. And we'll, of course, connect over social media. And so we'll keep our listeners updated to what's happening with Dole's and of course, how you can follow Arjun and his work. And also you and I, the next time you're in Gainesville, we're getting together for some coffee and we're going to continue this conversation, hopefully for years to come. Of so course. I'm, I'm, it's just been great getting to know you today and your work and um, and let's be in touch. So thank you so much. Thank you very much.